0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Israel Bible Podcast. My name is Cindy Parker, and I am an author, a speaker, and the professor of Holy Land Studies at Israel Bible Center. I am passionate about reading the Bible in the physical, historical, and cultural context of its day. And I really love having these geeky conversations with people about all kinds of topics. Dr. Yashai Gruber and I continue our conversation on his course, Exploring Jewish Interpretation. You probably know Dr. Gruber as he wears several hats at IBC. He is the professor of Jewish history and culture, the host of the Round Table Talks, and he often hosts the monthly IBC Hot Topic Seminars. We were talking last week about how context matters, how the historical period an interpreter lived in or their geographical context shifted their perspective and how they interpreted the Bible. You will have to take his class to really understand the wide variety of Jewish interpreters that Dr. Gruber highlights. I find it interesting that with all this diversity, the constant point of contact throughout the course is the first phrase or two in Genesis, and the fact that interpreters have a wide variety of ideas about those phrases, which doesn't that just make you pause and think, don't we know how to interpret this yet? It's been thousands of years so welcome into our conversation. I hope you enjoy it.
1: That's really interesting what you are saying, because, of course, we only cover a minute proportion of all of the interpretations just of that opening phrase of the Bible, too. Right. You know, we could go on for many years just looking at what people have said about the first verse. But do we know how to interpret it? Well, yes and no. And that's a key point um, that you learn when you study Jewish interpreters, because uh, Jewish interpretation will always be based on the Hebrew text. And one very important thing to know about biblical Hebrew is that it is somewhat ambiguous or flexible. There is, a, so to speak, a multiplicity of meanings either built into the text itself or that can easily be read out of it without stretching too much. So just by the nature of the Hebrew language itself, you can easily come up with multiple interpretations. And I think this basic linguistic fact actually influences the whole history of Jewish interpretation and why Jewish interpreters are not shy about coming up with all sorts of different interpretations, which for some Christians, for example, seems strange, uh, at least initially, because like you said, many from a Christian background have been taught that they are looking for the right answer. But even if you go back to the Talmud, for example, you know, almost 2,000 years ago, it's basically um, a continual argument among different views and interpretations and perspectives. Um, You could almost say it's like a competition of who can come up with the craziest interpretation sometimes. (laughs) You know, they take a verse and then they say it means A, and someone else says, no, it means B, and someone else says, no, it means C, and someone else says, you're all wrong, it means D. And then they go on to the next verse, you know, something like this. There's not even always a resolution, or very often there's not, in fact. So part of that, you know, multiplicity of viewpoints actually comes from the very nature of biblical Hebrew itself. And this is an example I've given um, in various contexts. I think uh, we talked about it maybe in our translation seminar that we did at IBC also. You know, the from ancient times already, the very first words of the Bible were controversial and people weren't exactly sure how to understand them. Does it mean in the beginning God created? Does it, if we were to use our language you know, to express it, does it mean at the beginning of God's creation this is what happened or this is what things were like? Or does it even mean, as some Kabbalists uh, suggested, in the beginning created God, essentially? like? Our idea of God, the only way we can relate to what they called en soph, the, um, the infinite, the true reality beyond our perception, the only way we can relate to that is through our idea of God in this world, in this universe, but that's not the ultimate reality, they would say. So was it the beginning that created what we can understand of as God, which isn't even the totality of who the being that we call God is? Um, so, you know, many, many questions and speculations arise just around a few words. And um, I could go, I could go on to other things, but I'll let you maybe ask your next question.
0: I did want to highlight some of the Jewish styles of interpretation, just to kind of give people, if they're not familiar with them, just to give them a, a sense of a flavor of what you talk about. And So you list a few different things and then I'd like to hear you maybe explain two of them or something, but there's the Hebrew linguistic bias, which sounds a little bit like what you were just talking about, always based in the Hebrew language and pulling out ambiguities, Um, uncertainty, flexibility, asking questions is one of my favorites uh, open possibilities, unexpected applications to provoke or stimulate thought. That one I thought was really very fun too. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Do you mind like choosing one or two of your favorites of those and maybe just giving an example of how we would treat a text using that method?
1: Yeah, sure. You know, there's a, a kind of joke that I tell during the course as well, which has to do with the wise men of Helm infamous yes. in uh, Hasidic and Jewish folklore. So there's one story where in this particular town, they've had the sexton or the, you know, aide at the synagogue who always goes around, you know, knocking on people's shutters, uh, window shutters in the morning to tell them it's time to come to synagogue so that they get up and get there on time. But he eventually gets old and he's um, infirm and he can no longer go walking around the town to knock on people's shutters to wake them up. So they have a kind of Congress, so they get together and they say, what can we do? You know, We've always relied on this man to knock on our shutters. And eventually the wise men uh, pipe up and they say, we have it, we have the solution. We will all just in the morning, take our shutters over to him where he's lying in his bed and he will knock on them there at his own house. And it's a perfectly logical solution to the problem. The only issue is, of course, well, which problem are you trying to solve? Are you (laughs) trying to solve the problem of this man not being able to knock on your shutters, which is essentially what often happens in any religion. Um, People get a certain set tradition, and then they think that's the truth, and that's what has to be preserved, and they forget about the original reason or motivation or underlying message that may be there. So is that the problem you're trying to solve, that this man must always inevitably, inexorably knock on the shutters of everyone in the neighborhood? Or is the purpose something different, like how do we know when to get up and go to shul? So one thing that I think good Jewish interpretation does is to ask questions like that, not, just, not to start from any particular expected starting point, like, oh no, how do we get this man to knock on our shutters? because, you know, he's old and infirm. If you start from that point, then you will logically reach the same conclusion as the wise men of Helm. You know, we must take our shutters over to him. Well, great, then you've solved your problem. But what if that's not the real problem? What if that's not the real question? So let's go back before that. Let's ask some other questions. So I think that this is very much in the keeping of, good, uh, of the spirit of good... Um, good Jewish interpretation. I make the point that, you know, in my interpretation, in my understanding, not every Jewish interpretation is necessarily a good one, you know, and there are very dogmatic Jewish interpretations as well uh, that, you know, maybe are very similar to the example of the shutters. I li- in other words, I'd like to focus on the ones that open up the questions and the possibilities and get people to think more broadly. Yeah, so that's, ha- that's having to do with asking questions and opening possibilities. You also mentioned the unexpected applications. And this is something you often find. You find it already in ancient Jewish thinkers, like uh, Philo, for example, he says he's going to do a commentary on Genesis. And then what does he start talking about? Genesis is about the creation of the world, right? And very early humanity. So then what does he start talking about in his Jewish Greek context? Philo lived in the first century and he wrote in Greek, describing Hebrew ideas for a Greek-speaking audience. He was from Alexandria in Egypt. So then what does he end up talking about? He talks about how the Torah begins with creation. In other words, the law or the the right way to live begins with creation for a particular reason. You know. So he's saying, in other words, this is a book of law or... or I mean he uses the Greek word nomos which is <laughs> a whole other topic in itself you can go to some of our courses for that but he, so he says basically Moses is a great lawgiver and even greater than any of your Greek law, uh, any of the Greeks who have given laws or Egyptians or any others who have in history given laws and why because he starts with creation now that's interesting no one's thinking of that you know what does that have to do with the quality of the laws and then he explains that these laws are in harmony with the cosmos. The Greek understand you know the Greek uh, notion of cosmos is the universe, which operates according to certain principles, um, especially if you follow a kind of Aristotelian logic, um, which would have been common at the time. So the the universe is in harmony according to certain, probably unchangeable principles. What we would now call the laws of physics. I'm not saying I necessarily agree that they are unchangeable. I'm saying that's how. You know, many people would have seen them as unchangeable um, and still do. And so he's, he's connecting that harmonious universe that operates according to laws you can't see with what Moses places before the sons of Israel, some you know, little tribe in the desert, and saying this, these rules, these guidelines, that's the, the equivalent of you know, the motions of the planets, for example, so this is unexpected, you know, it's it's a connection you you wouldn't think of at first glance. There are many others like that as well.
0: I would be curious even in the interpretation, the multiple interpretations of Genesis 1 that you pursue. How often is it a matter of how was creation done versus who is doing the creating? Like do is the primary question actually more who is the creator of the universe? Or is the question, by which means did the creator create?
1: You know, I haven't done a statistical analysis, so I don't know, you know, which is more common. What I can say is that all sorts of questions are asked, you know, who created the universe, by what means, in what order, for what purpose, what was being done before that, Some texts would say through which letter of the alphabet was the universe created, you know, or um, what does, things like that. All sorts of questions are asked. So I don't know which is more common. So one of the things that the whole corpus of Jewish interpretation inspires us to do is to ask all of these big questions. And in a sense, not be satisfied exactly, but to recognize that we don't have all of the answers for all of these things there are conversations we can have but we can't necessarily answer a b and c and just to sort of circle back to the whole question of religions i think that one of the things that happened in christianity in particular um as you were suggesting at the beginning is that there was this emphasis on finding the answer whether it's a b or c and of course different people in the in you know the christian world gave different answers to those questions as well and because there was this idea that there has to be one dogma, there has to be one answer, then this created um, a splintering of the Christian world into all sorts of different movements and sects and schisms and denominations. I mean, I don't know how many there are now, um, certainly in the hundreds. And to, to a certain extent, this happened in Judaism as well. But I think it happens in Judaism, uh, well, first of all, less a bit less, because of this uh, flexibility in interpretation. But secondly, it happens in Judaism when the powers that be in the religion essentially do the same thing as I was describing for Christianity. So, for example, even from early times, you have the rabbi saying, everybody has to follow our interpretations. And the Karaites say, why why should we follow your interpretations? I don't want to follow your interpretations. We're not going to follow your interpretations. You know, so but if they hadn't said everyone has to agree with us, then there maybe wouldn't have been that split. You know, so there's a there's this dichotomy of course in in the Jewish world as well between the dogmatism and the established answers that you have to accept um which then leads to splits and schisms and things like that. Versus, you know, the broader tradition that I think is more accepting and more encouraging of open questioning and discussion and disagreement.
0: Yeah. One of the things I like to do with my students, not at IBC, and I like to do this because I'm trying to train myself to do this in terms of, they're always asking, what is the right answer? And I keep going, how many more questions can we ask? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like. Let's just keep rephrasing that question, go back and look at it again and go back and look at it again. And let's just, let's, let's, instead of trying to find the one answer, let's as a group, try to ask as many questions from as many different angles as we can, which doesn't satisfy most of my students, because at the end of the day, they go home with a lot more questions than anything figured out, but they've also explored the text more thoroughly and in a more thoughtful way. And it, and in doing so, have explored their own assumptions about their preconceived notions of what the text is supposed to mean. And I find that to be a really helpful exercise. Uh, kind of one of those, this is one of the things we can really learn from a long history of Jewish interpretation that, say, Christian interpretation is missing out on. But we could, there's a lot to be learned there.
1: That's a really interesting point, Cindy. And I know for some people, it can be frustrating to end up with more questions than you started with. On the other hand, I think this is, again, part of backing up a little bit and not having the blinkers that a racehorse has on. But Uh, opening up the perspective and saying, well, actually, what's the real purpose or the real question here? I mean, does it matter if I figure out some minute aspect of um, what one particular verse means in the context of my theology? Or does it matter if I come to know God a little more or if I learn to love my fellow human being a little bit better? And so that's, again, the point that Rabbi Sachs was making. What is the Torah about? What is the purpose of studying it? And, you know, he refers to Jewish thinkers throughout history and what they said about this. And and what he often does is he says, well, what were they really trying to say? Like there's this example of Rashi, famous example, saying that the Torah shouldn't have started with creation. So Philo, for example, says, what a brilliant thing that Moses did starting with creation. And Rashi says, no, he shouldn't have started with creation. He should have started with the mitzvot, the commandments. And of course, both of them are reflecting very much their own setting because Rashi's writing for a Jewish audience focused on the commandments, the mitzvot of Torah, and Philo's writing for a Greek audience focused on the cosmos and understanding the laws of nature. So, uh, but that aside, Sachs comes along, you know, a thousand years after Rashi, and he says, Well, what in the world is he talking about? What is he? He can't pos- he can't seriously believe that, can he? I mean, this is the Torah, the, the word of God. You know, is he really saying that it's messed up and it should have been written differently and, and so forth? And so Saxe's conclusion is, no, well, he, that's not the point. The, what is he really saying? He's saying that the essence of these books is the teaching us how to live, the mitzvot, the commandments. In other words, the instruction of God about how we should behave in the world. So he's not saying it's written wrong. He's using that as a rhetorical device to... Um, bring home a more important point, perhaps. And it's a point you wouldn't have thought of, maybe, if you were just focused on like, well, what does mitzvah number 527 mean? You know, <laughs> <laughs>
0: right. it's, there's,
1: there are bigger <laughs> issues involved. And, you know, of course, the details are important, too. But it's nice to take a step back.
0: Is he, is Rabbi Sachs saying that everyone has misunderstood what Rashi was saying and he was actually coming to the right conclusion but explained it in a different way? Is that what he's doing? Like he's been misunderstood? Or is he saying he had it right to a certain extent? Maybe I should ask more questions. That was an either-or question, which in the course of this conversation, I should be mindful, is not the right way to ask questions.
1: So that's a great question and very interesting. Um, I'm not sure he's necessarily doing either one. I'm not sure he's saying it's right or wrong. I think he's explaining the nature of what is being said. And you talked about the different kinds of Jewish interpretation. So there's midrash, for example, which is like story, invented story or parable, which is very common. Um, There are all sorts of other reasoning devices or ways of going about explaining the text. And they're not all just, you know, very straightforward and simple and literalistic. They're, again, often trying to get you to a broader point. Um, actually, Jesus, Yeshua, did this very, very often. You know, people would ask a simple question, like, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Well, what's the answer he gave to that? Did he say yes or did he say no? Well, he didn't <laughs> say either one. He said, let me look at a coin, uh, you know, as if he hasn't seen a coin before. He's like, oh, this is interesting. There's a picture of somebody on this. Who Whose picture is it? They're like, well, Caesar, of course, you know. That's how you get coins in the Roman Empire. And he said, so, well, give to Caesar what's Caesar's and to God what is God's. And, you know, what kind of answer is that? Do we pay taxes or not then? You know, (laughs) what is God's? What is Caesar's? (laughs) And maybe those things overlap. You know, God owns everything and, you know, Caesar claims part of it. You know, it doesn't answer the question at all. But that's because uh, what it does do is point to a much bigger issue than whether you pay taxes or not. Now, I understand paying taxes or not is a big issue today also. It's not a small question, this one, that they asked him. It's a huge question. But he's saying there's something even more important than that, which is, well, what's your attitude toward and relationship to the creator? And what's your attitude and relationship toward the, so to speak, creator of the Roman Empire? That's a bigger question. There's no simple yes or no or pat answer Um, for any of those. And like I said, he did this very often. Sometimes I like to talk about the famous story of the Good Samaritan. It's a question of, you know, how do I gain eternal life? And this is one where he, where it's actually is a simple question, in fact, uh, with a simple answer, one of the few times. And so, uh, you know, an expert in the Torah comes and says, you know, what can I do to gain eternal life? And he says, well, I don't know. I mean, what do you think? And he, so he answers and he says, well, love God and love your neighbor, basically. I'm paraphrasing the story, but everyone can read it for themselves. And uh, Jesus says, that's right. Do this and you'll live. <laughs> so that, that's one of the very few times there's a simple answer to a question. And we think, how do you get eternal life? Well, that must be one of the most complicated questions there is. No, that's actually the simple one. <laughs> how do you get eternal life? It's very easy, very simple answer. But then the conversation does go on why because it's not so easy to fully love God and love everyone else and so the man asks him well you know but who it's is it's not my love
0: everyone else right i mean it's that's right. it's the love part my neighbor. That is yes. that creates the ambiguity is it's not this open ended love everyone it's love your neighbor
1: exactly it's like, good the love one your next fellow. door yeah <laughs> exactly how <laughs> Two how <doors> many down? <laughs> Exactly. You know, maybe this is possible after all. Maybe if we can just limit it to our next door neighbors, maybe if we just work on that, it could be possible. Right. So that's what he asks. He's like, Well, who is my neighbor? And then we again get this kind of, you know, unexpected type of answer, midrashic type of answer, very typical of the period, very typical of, of a lot of Jewish interpretation. And what's the answer? Well, your neighbor is the one who lives in your city, or the neighbor is the one who lives in on your street or in your country or the one who's from your nation or your language or your tribe. No, none of that. He says, a man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. This is, a you know, redirecting the conversation again. And um, by the way, the first part of that redirection is something that I know is dear to you and that you explain in your courses. I mean, it's linked to the land of Israel, Eretz Yisrael. It's a geographical thing. As soon as you say... A man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Even today, anyone who's been there knows what you're talking about. It's a whole picture of that road going down through the desert landscape. Um very steep road with lots of good places for robbers to hide. In the end, they arrive at the you know question of well, who is my neighbor again? And and it's rephrased as to whom can I be a neighbor? But it's very interesting that this same question continues on all through the the history of Jewish interpretation since then. Who is my neighbor? Because a lot of the Torah relates to how you're supposed to treat your neighbor. And even today in the land of Israel, it's a sharp divide between, you know, I would say mainly two different interpretations. Of course, there are many gradations as well. It's probably a spectrum. But if we were to take the more extreme versions, you know, one version is kind of saying, "Well, every other human being is my neighbor," and the other version is saying something like, "Well, only Jews are my neighbors, or only true Jews are my neighbors, or only the, you know, Jews who follow my way of believing are my neighbors." You know, so there are these. Even until this day, two thousand years later, that question is still ongoing in Jewish interpretation: "Who is my neighbor?" And it influences people's behavior. It influences how we interact with other humans and and the environment around us.
0: We started the conversation with the first phrases of Genesis and ended with the ongoing modern interpretation of the question, Who is my neighbor? Dr. Gruber's course is fascinating and will make your mind bend in interesting ways. It is easy to sign up for the course. Just click on the links in the show notes. Thank you to Jeremy McDonald from Mason Jar Music for doing an amazing job mixing, editing, and crafting all the good sounds you hear. And thank you for hanging out with me and being curious about all things Bible related.